0: Most of us like to simplify and sort, give people labels, put them in a box. We often describe large groups of voters, for instance, in overly simplistic terms, which might help us make sense of the world, but those kind of caricatures really have hazards.
1: Boy, and we're really living in a moment right now in which... Stereotypes and snap judgments and other kinds of of assumptions about other people are really showing their hazards. We'll get back to those issues later in the show, but the focus of this episode is on something that surprised a lot of people in the last election, which was how Latino voters actually voted.
0: We speak with Latino studies professor Haroldo Cadava. The topic: Hispanic Republicans.
2: And I think that one lesson is that all Latino votes have to continue to be fought for and really earned and not just taken for granted by one party or another. But I do think that now we are having that conversation and waking up to a reality that Latinos are incredibly diverse, well beyond even how we've talked about Latino diversity.
0: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it?
1: There are a lot of things that we get wrong when we discuss politics, and I think one of the most troubling is the kind of oversimplification that looks at other people as really superficial actors in a drama rather than as fully formed human beings capable of making their own decisions.
0: That's very much true of how we discuss racial and ethnic groups, especially when making generalizations about racial identity. The labels are misapplied. I mean, one of the results of the 2020 election was just how wrong many of my fellow liberals were to
1: assume that
0: people of color vote one way. They don't.
1: And among Hispanics in particular, in some parts of the country, President Trump won more support in the past election than he did in 2016.
0: Our guest is Geraldo Cadava, author of the book, The Hispanic Republican.
1: Cadava is an associate professor of history and Latina and Latino studies at Northwestern University. And a quick note, we did this interview a couple of weeks ago before the storming of the US Capitol. We think a lot of the points in this discussion are relevant to kind of where we go from here And then we'll circle back to how this fits into recent events in our wrap-up at the end of the show.
0: Geraldo joins us from Chicago. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So what is the most common misconception that people make about Hispanics?
2: Uh, Well, I think it's been assumed for a long time that Hispanics are natural Democrats who will lend their support to the Democratic Party. You know We've heard these conversations bubble up a lot more recently when we see the demographics of the country changing and Latinos representing a greater and greater share of the American population. And I think that the assumption has long been that the growing number of Latino voters will help deliver victories for the Democratic Party. It's true, it's been true for a long time that the A supermajority of Latinos have supported Democrats, but there's always been, for the past half century, a reliable quarter to a third of Latinos who've voted for Republicans.
0: So both Jim and I were fascinated by your personal interest in this subject. How did you become uh, so interested in this?
2: Well, I think it's really because of my relationship with my grandfather, my father's father, um, and he is a Hispanic Republican who voted for Reagan for the first time in 1980 when he was a copper miner or a silver miner outside of uh, Tucson, Arizona. And um, he voted for Reagan for the first time because Reagan was promising to put more money back in his paycheck through tax cuts. And so he became a Republican for that very narrow reason. But then over the past four decades has come to embrace Every position held by the Republican Party, whole cloth. So I was kind of interested in the evolution of one person's politics from one very limited reason to become a Republican to kind of becoming an, a Republican fully. I talked to him two weeks before this election and asked him how he felt about Donald Trump. And he said that Donald Trump is a great guy because he's a Republican. I mean, there was no discussion of policy or anything like that. It was just that he was a Republican. So he really developed a partisan loyalty over the course of decades that is pretty hard to shake and i think the he and i had just argued about politics talked about politics for much of my life and i think you know when i was a teenager in the 90s is when we really started going having those conversations with him and my relationship with him is really what helped me approach the oral histories and interviews with a measure of empathy and being willing to Listen to and disagree with, and talk to people whose political beliefs I I don't share. You know, but I I think it's important for us to listen to one another and try to understand where we're coming from if we're going to try to find any common ground.
1: You start your book with the story of Desi Arnaz, the the great band leader and husband of Lucille Ball, and entrepreneur who invented the rerun, <laughs> among <laughs> other things. Tell us why he was so important to the story.
2: Yeah, I think he was important for a couple of reasons, but I think many people who know about him don't necessarily know either about his migration story to the United States and how he came to the United States from Cuba. And I don't know that many Americans know about his political associations and his family isn't the kind of typical Cuban exile migration story. They came during an earlier wave of migration in the 1930s when there was an earlier Cuban revolution. So right off the bat, I wanted to complicate the idea that it wasn't just the Cuban revolution of 1959 and that there was this earlier revolution that also led Cubans to migrate to the United States. I mean, for a lot of the same reasons, you know, it just highlights this idea that this popular entertainer had political views as well and then went on to chair the Hispanics for Nixon campaign. So there, there were just, just a lot in there that I wanted to get across right from the beginning.
0: We live in a time of racial identity politics where many people feel that ethnic groups vote a certain way, identify a certain way, more because of their ethnicity than because of anything else. And I think part of what you're saying is that our country is much more nuanced than that, and that people have multiple identities and have multiple reasons for why they may go for one candidate or one party or another.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And in the case of Latinos, that couldn't be more true. So national diversity or national group diversity, the fact that we come from many different places, that's part of it. But I think, you know, this election highlighted, even though it's always been true, that we have lots of different political beliefs, but Also, that we live in very different parts of the country, in rural areas, urban areas. There are gender divides between men and women, differences between evangelicals and Catholics. After this election, we're having a much more fundamental debate about whether there are Hispanics, whether there are Latinos. And uh, so it will remain a curiosity to me that this election sparked that conversation. But I do think that now we are having that conversation and waking up to a reality that Latinos are incredibly diverse uh, well beyond even how we've talked about Latino diversity
1: one thing that really jumped out at a lot of observers was the way that uh, that Trump got a lot of votes along those counties along the Rio Grande border in Texas among uh, Latino voters which really surprised a lot of people particularly because you know he'd had that that very alarming anti, Mexico rhetoric and anti-immigrant rhetoric, and yet people who are closest to the border uh, seem to somehow flip in their orientation and support it by by significant numbers at any rate. Mm, What do you think was going on there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I personally think that that is the most surprising result. I mean, I think it's also surprising that even in democratic cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, the shift was towards Trump. And, you know, it's partly a story about how the Democratic Party has for so long taken those voters for granted. It's an area that's like 80 to 90 percent Mexican-American. And because they are the majority population, they might not feel marginalized or discriminated against in the same way because it's a Predominantly Mexican American region. They are the majority. I think another interesting question that has come up is Are the Mexican Americans in the Rio Grande Valley much more like, you know, rural Americans in Iowa and Nebraska than they are like other Latinos in Houston? I think you can ask the same question about Mexican Americans or Latino agricultural workers in the Central Valley of California. Are they more like, Uh, the Mexican-American voters in the Rio Grande than they are like other Latino voters in Los Angeles and San Francisco. So I think it's a really interesting region.
0: Democrats were certainly surprised by how poorly they did, especially in Texas and Florida. And part of that was because of the Hispanic vote. What mistakes were made, do you think, by uh, Democrats in, in 2020?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, I think you can't discount the fact that the Biden campaign got a very late start on recruiting Latinos and prioritizing Latinos. So to really successfully recruit Latinos, you have to prioritize Latinos from the get-go. I think Republicans have been good at it, Democrats have been good at it, but it really depends on the candidate and the priorities of the campaign.
1: But it's also not always just about how people talk to a group of voters. There's also actual policies and voters have interest depending on on what their life needs are. A lot of Latinos are entrepreneurs, business owners, small business owners. Is it possible that a less regulatory, more free market pro-business message or actual policies from Republicans is part of the appeal? Mm -hmm. are they perhaps drawn to what they perceive as a more pro-business set of policies?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I didn't mean to imply that um, it was all about outreach. I think the issue of outreach and policies are closely related because part of what you do by prioritizing communities early on is start listening to what they actually care about and what the policies are they prefer instead of just running almost exclusively against uh, Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric and policies, which proved to be less effective than many Democrats hoped. So yeah, I think it has to do with uh, the economy. I mean, from the get go, really, in 2017, Trump was talking about his tax cuts and financial deregulations, the fact that uh, the poverty rate among Latinos was lower, that Latinos had higher rates of homeownership and family median incomes. So that was an important part of the appeal. And then the religious liberty appeal, which went far beyond Um, the politics of abortion, but also had to do with the religious identity of charter schools and, you know, a general desire to blur the lines between public and private faith. During
0: the election campaign, Republicans also claimed, incorrectly, that
2: Democrats are socialists. That line was pretty effective, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think also, I mean, even though it's it's more muted, I mean, I think every Latino group conservatives have their own anti-social message. So among Puerto Rican Republicans, for example, they've long seen the independentistas, those on the island arguing for the independence of Puerto Rico. They've called them Marxists and socialists for a long time. So I think the issue resonates for Puerto Ricans. Many Mexican-Americans whose families came in the 1920s after the revolution as part of the Cristero War, they will look back at the 1917 Constitution of Mexico, which was all about land redistribution, the removal of the Catholic Church from public life. I mean, they'll see the 1917 Constitution as a Marxist inspired document. So I think all Latino conservative groups have a version of anti socialism. It might, you know, immediately our mind is, of course, drawn to the Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans. But I think, you know, I can't think of one group of Latino conservatives that likes the idea of socialism.
1: There's also religion. How does that play into the picture?
2: I think it's huge. I mean I think that in, in a lot of ways, um, the Trump campaign saw Latino evangelicals as or, and Latino evangelical churches as really uh, fertile recruiting ground. And it's not that all evangelicals are conservative uh, to hear Latino evangelicals, uh, their leaders describe themselves. They talk about how they're really swing voters, and 50% go for Democrats, 50% go for Republicans. But a 50-50 split is still much better odds than the uh, you know Latino vote at the national level. So it's still fertile recruiting ground. I think it's also important because evangelicalism, Latino evangelicalism in particular, is largely an immigrant religion we've been talking about hispanic republicans
0: but in the southwest in arizona and nevada for instance um latinos are a crucial part of the growing democratic coalition and and unions are also part of of recruitment for democrats right
2: absolutely yeah yeah you know there's and and you know there there are reasons to be optimistic as Democrats. Um, and so many Democrats point to the fact that Biden won a, a record number of Latino votes. He earned more Latino votes than Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and 60% of eligible Latinos voted, which is a, a huge increase compared with the historical average of like 48, 47%. So I think that's another reason to be optimistic. And a lot of the growth for Democrats was really fueled by, uh, you know, young Latino voters who also participated in greater numbers. We'll see though, you know, I wouldn't want that thinking just to duplicate this idea that Latinos are about to uh, deliver a string of successes for Democrats. I mean, I think that one lesson is that all Latino votes have to continue to be fought for and, Really earned and not just taken for granted by one party or another.
1: Another issue that perhaps is more more nuanced in reality than in the way that it's often framed in the media is immigration. Lots of people assume that Trump's criticisms of of illegal immigration being so kind of ham-handed and and uh, and extreme would immediately drive lots of voters against him. But in fact, uh, Latinos and immigrants in general have somewhat split views on immigration, especially illegal immigration, don't they?
2: Oh, man, for sure. I mean, this is such a complicated issue. And I, I guess I should state clearly that, yes, a majority of Latinos will reject Trump's immigration policies. I'm not, by explaining the conservative Hispanic Republican position on immigration, I'm not trying to say that these are two equal sides of the argument. I mean, the majority of Latinos are. Opposed to Trump's immigration policies. But Latino Republicans have had a lot to say to me about immigration. I mean, one thing that they believe is that Democrats just fundamentally misunderstand the aspirations of immigrants and that Latinos or Latin American immigrants coming to the United States don't want to be lumped together as uh, part of a racial group called Latinos. They come to America to pursue the um, American dream, and that's what it's all about for them, to better themselves, to better their lives, to create more opportunities for their children. A woman I interviewed in South Texas who was running for office, she was from Edinburgh, which was kind of ground zero for a lot of the immigrant detention family separation controversies a couple of years ago. Her version of the story is that the media just got that wrong and that border Patrol separating families, uh, detaining children, they were in fact protecting Children, because many immigrants were being trafficked as sex workers, or they were being brought by adults who uh, just wanted to enter the United States themselves but weren't really their parents. So the Border Patrol was, in fact, protecting them. I think that uh, that's largely untrue, not entirely untrue, perhaps. But my point about all of this is that Latino Republicans have their own stories about the immigration controversies. And some even just said that whenever Trump talked about immigrants, they knew that he wasn't talking about them. He was talking about illegals. He was not talking about American citizens. So they never thought that Trump was racist. I mean, this is really complicated. And all I mean to suggest is that um, Latino Republicans have ideas that counter the mainstream arguments about immigration.
1: Thank you, Geraldo Cadava.
2: Sure.
0: Geraldo's recent book is The Hispanic Republican. This is How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies.
1: And I'm Jim Meggs.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more.
2: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week.
1: Individual results may vary.
0: Before we continue, Jim, with our conversation and a book recommendation, a word about the Democracy
1: Group. How Do We Fix It is part of DemocracyGroup.org, a podcast network of 11 shows, including ours, about civil discourse and how relevant. The Future of Democracy.
0: Other shows include Swamp Stories, Cash and Corruption in Washington, Politics in Question, and Out of Order, which is a show about global politics. And uh, we'll mention these shows more in, in the coming weeks.
1: Now back to our show with a recommendation. Richard, you've been reading the new book cast by Pulitzer Prize winning author Isabel Wilkerson.
0: Yeah, she wrote The Warmth of Other Suns, a superb history about the great migration of blacks from the South to other parts of the country. She's followed it up with caste, which is more of a commentary about race and class. She writes that an unspoken caste system has shaped America and outlines how our lives today are still defined by a hierarchy of human divisions. It's a controversial notion. I don't agree with everything she says, but the book is very well written, provocative, and also well researched. It forms an important and I think moving part of our national conversation on race.
1: So I haven't read this book, but I did read the large excerpt which ran in the New York Times- magazine last year and, and I think was meant to capture kind of the essence of the book. And what struck me there was she said, actually, I can quote it. She said, throughout human history, three caste systems have stood out, the lingering millenniums-long caste system of India, then the caste system of Nazi Germany, and, quote, the shape-shifting, unspoken, race-based caste pyramid of the United States. And as I understand it, the book goes you know, into some detail to compare those, but you don't think we might be in one of those situations where a brilliant author with some great ideas gets a little too carried away with a, a thesis? I mean, they, the caste system in India was embedded, you know, for three thousand years in their society, and honestly, Nazi Germany. Um, I'm dubious that you can make a case that the world today. For, for blacks and other ethnic minorities is the equivalent of Nazi Germany. Um, are there things to be learned from comparison? Absolutely. Are there warnings for potential problems in the future? Absolutely. But I'm just inherently skeptical of, of these, these kinds of sweeping claims that require pushing all kinds of other evidence off the page.
0: That's a fair point, Jim, but I urge you to read the book. It changed the way I view race and class cast by Isabel Wilkerson. There's also a podcast to go along with it, and we link to both at our website. Let me start, Jim, with just a reminder about the Latino vote, which is very different In some states than in others, according to the exit polls recently, Latinos in Georgia were a factor in the Democrats' success in the special election for two Senate seats. In November, they voted for Democrats by a 10 percent margin. And then in January, according to the polling analysis, uh, the margin grew to 30 percent.
1: Isn't that interesting a very dynamic group and that kind of fits with what Geraldo was saying that you have to accept that people have different reasons to vote for the candidates or the parties they do at different times different different points in their lives depending on where they're from where they live just like everybody else but as you said up top when we oversimplify the idea that people are defined primarily by their ethnic group rather than by other factors, we may miss those nuances.
0: That's a huge danger now after the assault on the Capitol by putting every single person who voted for Donald Trump or who said something sympathetic about the, the president or, or the ex-president in the same basket. And, and I think this, this oversimplification is part of the problem of our hyper-partisan divisions in this country
1: yeah there's so much going on in those wackos who uh, invaded the the uh, the capital. i mean, i'm I'm doing a piece right now about the role of conspiracy theories and this kind of online marginalization. So it's way more than just, oh, we can't stereotype people. and And, you know, in those seventy five million people who voted for or whatever the number is who voted for trump, it's there they might have had a lot of different reasons. but but there's something going on at the fringe there that is really extreme, really scary. It's chilling. I mean, people showing up with with guns with with um, Molotov cocktails modified to work like napalm with, you know, wrist restraints, like plastic handcuffs and and but they're catching these guys, and that's a really good thing. Now we have to spend some time examining how they. Worked themselves into this incredibly scary mindset.
0: It's it's really serving to warn us that the problem of of right wing or or white nationalist extremism in this country is is deeper and and more threatening than we thought.
1: Yeah, yeah, or extremism. Period. Um, but I want to look a little farther down the road. Let's let's assume, and it's a, maybe a big assumption, that we we get through this period. These people go to jail. uh, And then the question is, do we still have a two party system? Is there a Republican Party that can pull itself back together? And, you know, I don't think that we know yet. But if we do, the insights that Kadava brought to this show about what brings people like these Hispanic voters that he looks at to consider, you know, a different approach, maybe there's a Republican Party that is more focused on those people, on being an attracting a diverse group, maybe being focused a little bit more on working class concerns, a kind of populism, but not the 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 radical, scary, ultra-nationalist populism that we saw in Washington last week.
0: The crisis inside the Republican Party is, uh, and, and- I would argue the cancer in the Republican Party is something that is going to have to be diagnosed and and discussed. And no doubt we'll have future shows on this and other topics that deal with what has been a pivotal moment, not only in our year of politics, but perhaps in our recent modern era of politics.
1: People will be talking about this a century from now and how we process this how we move beyond it how we heal is really a major project for our time
0: and for our podcast it's how do we fix it (laughs) yes i'm richard
1: davies and i'm jim Meggs. our show is a production
0: of davies content and our producer on this episode and all of our episodes is miranda Schaefer. thanks miranda for making it sound a lot better than we would otherwise and thanks for listening